You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to the new edition of TLS Voices. My name is Stig Abel, editor of the Times Literary Supplement. I'm joined as ever by commissioning editor and eater of brain, Thea Lenardutzi. I'm not gonna not gonna spell that out. I'm just gonna leave that to, just, to hang there. Just to hang Think there. what you will. Yeah, it is accurate. Though. We can <laughs> confirm it is accurate. It is accurate. It is. It has happened. Eater of brain. And this week we should be talking about the annual TLS Books of the Year edition. After that, we're going to hear a poem published for the first time anywhere by the TLS this week by John Addington Simmons. He was a 19th century man of letters and historian tortured by sexual repression. Amber Regis is preparing the republication of his memoirs and has unearthed a poem by him called The Song of a Swimmer, which gives full force to his frustrated desires for men. It's a lovely thing and we shall hear that later. But first, Books of the Year. This is, of course, a staple of literary journalism and a chance for more than 70 TLS contributors to offer their thoughts on their favourite book of 2016. Being TLS contributors and therefore terrifyingly experts in their own discrete fields, there's never much unanimity in the selections. Not everybody has selected Harry Potter and the Cursed Child or the life-changing magic of tidying up, for example. Indeed, no one's selected either of those, now I come to think of it. Uh, The winner, if it can be so called, of the most nominations this year was the fourth and final edition of The Letters of Samuel Beckett. In 1989, interestingly enough, Samuel Beckett was asked to give his nomination for Books of the Year for the Sunday Telegraph. He said this, Away from reading all year long, mere odds and ends here and there, more ends than odds and rather there than here, little enjoyment, nothing worthy your Xmas feature. (laughs) This is brilliant, obviously, from a writer whose reputation is closely connected to things that are odd and things that are ending. And the abbreviation of Christmas to Xmas, like a bad Hallmark card, makes me happy too, from possibly the least Christmas cardy writer ever. Another book with multiple nominations this year was Democracy A Life by Paul Cartledge, which feels reasonable given the democratic frisson of 2016, the year that delivered the popular mandate for Brexit and for Trump. Indeed, democracy, as imagined by Samuel Beckett, would be a fair summary of 2016, perhaps. In fiction, there is love for the Booker-nominated All That Man Is by David... Toby Lichtig's pronunciation of his person. Zoloi. Zoloi. Thus Bad Begins by Javier Marias. 
Yeah. Yep, yep, pretty good. And <laughs> Frantumalia. Yes. By Elena Ferrante. Ferrante. Yes. Fear <laughs> will be doing Ferrante again, no doubt, throughout the course of this podcast, which isn't really fiction, and we talked about it last week. In any event, we're going to devote almost the whole of this week's podcast to the notion of books of the year. And joining Thea and me to discuss it all are two more commissioning editors from the TLS Lucy Dallas, the semi fictional arts editor, and Toby Lichtig, the semi artistic fiction editor. We're going to test the hotly disputed thesis that people who work in literary journalism actually have the time to read any or many <laughs> new books at all. So I think we're going to try and divide this into a few areas. Firstly, our thoughts on the list as compiled in the TLS, then perhaps our own books of the year, then the books we wish we had read this year, our conscience-pricking titles, and then perhaps books that aren't new but we've read or books that we've reread this year. And maybe if we're feeling mean, our disappointments of the year. Toby's putting his thumbs up to that, so we'll do that. <laughs> The list itself, is there anything on it that's anyone surprised about or wish especially to welcome? You think, oh, thank God someone has said that. Well, I mean, it's nice to get Samuel Beckett back on there, our old friend. I think every time a volume of these letters has come out in 2009, 2011, 2014, he's, he's always right up there. Is so it? Yeah. Welcome back. Why is that, do you think? Is, it, is, is, is he? Because he's kind of ever trendy, isn't he, Samuel Beckett? Ever yeah. trendy. I'm sure he'd love that description. Um, yeah. <laughs> Definitely what he, he thought himself was ever trendy. I think he's Absolutely. ever good, isn't he? Yeah. Interesting. Well, we're gonna, we've got a review of the we've got a review of it coming up. I think in the next couple of weeks because uh, we've got someone to, to to look at it in, in depth. But I just find that he is because he's sort of obs he's very modern and continually modern as the world gets sort of darker and more absurd, and you know Brexit is. A bit like Beckett. You know, often, you often hear people say, I, "I can't go on, I'll go on," and you know mm. that, that sense of futility and the sense of endlessly being trapped and being able to recognise it but do nothing about it mm. feels like a sort of treatment of the modern condition. But I presume it's that's been like that for fifty years. Yes, I suppose so. I see what you mean, but and it's also like the replaying and people saying, "Hang on a minute." But in the way that Trump might feel to us like a replaying of Brexit and, you know, from Britain, you were kind of slightly shouting, no, no, look what happened. But, you know, the, the US is a different country. They do their own thing. And we might feel they've replayed our situation. And there's, there's a sick and twisted irony in, in, in the kind of he lends himself so well to cute, to cuting, to quoting, which is just it just kind of adds to the darkness of it all. I mean, you would absolutely hate to be thought of, I think, as a spokesperson for any generation. I mean, what do I know of man's destiny? I could tell you more about radishes, was his line. Was it? it? Yeah. That's I mean, a great line. <laughs> That's a great line. Also, I think people are endlessly fascinated with Beckett the person. People used to make pilgrimages to his, his home in Paris. And mm. so anything, you know, it's another collection of letters. Anything that gives us a greater insight into Beckett Get the man as well as Beckett the writer, I think, will always be Which you would of also interest. Hate Absolutely appalled. Although he was always very welcome <laughs> very, to visitors. Very nice to people. I wish I'd gone to see him. Oh, yeah, he he's famously nice to people. People used to turn up, he'd invite them up for a cup of tea, sit nomically in front of them and not say anything for yeah, 15 yeah. minutes, and you know, that's what they wanted. Yeah, he didn't turn <laughs> people away, and he was nice to people, and just generally a, a good lad all round. And, and so be, we love him. And would be no doubt <laughs> horrified. That we're talking about him in a Yeah, I'm sure that's right. It's a funny thing to think of that in the 70s you could have Samuel Beckett contributing to a list like this and Nabokov theoretically could have contributed to, to a list like this. You don't, I you feel do... like you're about to lead into who are our Beckett and I wasn't going to necessarily course. do that. <laughs> we actually have someone called Beckett contributing. Lucy Beckett has contributed this year. And we do have uh, figures like that but I just went when you look back on people who have contributed to the TLS over, over the years it's easy to separate out in your own mind Beckett the playwright Nabokov the novelist but they all were I suppose 
caught up into literary journalism as well. Once you get to a certain point in the 20th century, if you're an author or a writer or a playwright or something, you're probably a literary journalist at some stage as well. Absolutely. There was that feature that we um, republished last week about authors being asked about their favourite children's books when they were growing up, and it was mm. a feature from the 70s, and some of the names on that were superb. I mean, you know, kind of really, really hard-hitting... Um, really, really big names. And there's good stuff in, in this and, and very interesting contributors. Is there anything before we move on to our own books of the year that uh, is worthy of, of note? Were you surprised by the fiction picks? Um, no, I was, I, was, I, I was pleased with the fiction picks. We've, we have Sarah Moss, um, uh, we have David Zoloy, who we, we mentioned, Aravind Adiga, all excellent books, uh, and a bit of Georges Simenon, which um, he's been being reissued by Penguin Classics over the past couple of years, so it was good to see him. There are a couple that didn't he's make good, it. He's good, isn't he? He's very good, he's great. I, I I read. I started reading. I went through a period where if I like something, I read too much of it. Well, there are seventy-five of them, and you do start reading the Maygrave ones, and they go yeah. on. But they're they're very nice, and there's some non-Maygrave books which are sort of very odd and sort of set set in Paris and slightly, but not that disturbing. And he seems to be on the way back again, doesn't he? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, there, and there are a couple that didn't make it, but I will come to those when we talk about my own choices. Lovely. Well, okay. Shall we uh, do that then? Who wants to go first with their books of the year? I'm happy to talk about a book I read. Well done. <laughs> because, of course, when you said you wanted to talk about books, I immediately couldn't think of any books at all no. that I'd read. It's a funny thing, though. I do think that if you spend your whole life reading about books and reading bits of books, which is, of course, all of you do, how much do you read new books uh, sort of outside of office hours? It's more a question of how much I read old books that I've been meaning to read. That's the, that's, that's the thing that I find very difficult to do. So those Victorian oh. classics that I never sort of... You're never, catch gonna, up you're never going to read them now. Well, I, I hope I will, but, I, the, you know, the, the pile gets bigger and, and, and I don't necessarily come to them as much as I would like you to. You can read them when you retire, except nobody ever retires no, from the TLS. Or leave. So you can just, yeah, sit at work when you're oh 80. God, it's it's I, left, nice I left so I came back. <laughs> yeah, you came back. I think that Very quite strange. often happens. Yeah. Everybody comes back. I left and came back. Yeah. I think my, back. my problem with books is, is my problem with books, that sounds like a <laughs> yeah. worrying so yeah, confession. Yeah, what are your problems with books? <laughs> is, is more how much of it I can read. So I can tell you that I've started so many books in the past year and then get distracted by something else. And that's that's you, that's the problem of the literary journalist. Do you read multiple books? I, I find I've got a, a, a tube book, a commute book, a kind of book to read very casually very late at night when you don't want to concentrate too much and like a couple of other books I try to read sort of three or four books at the mm. same time do you, do you that do inevitably that? Oh, ends up happening that. but I find mm. I find mm. that I don't enjoy that way of reading I prefer to dedicate myself to, something, to something but mm. life doesn't seem to work that way anymore so go on Lucy you were going to show off that you read a book I read a book this year and luckily it was very very good uh, Sudden Death by Alvaro Enrique oh it sounds Bonkers. Yeah, Go on, explain, it explain it to those, including me, who don't know very much about it. Well, it's a it's a novel, but it's got a lot of history in it, though the history is kind of, if not made up, it's not made up, but he's kind of moved it around to suit the narrative. And the sort of basis of it, or, the, or I suppose that one of the main strands of it, is a tennis match, real tennis, as it were, old tennis, between... Caravaggio and the uh, Spanish playwright uh, Francisco de Quevedo, which I don't know if it actually happened. Probably they weren't not. contemporaries. We just don't just, know that they. Yes, I think it would be just about possible, though. I think it's. I think I heard someone say that if it had been a real tennis match, one of them would have been sort of seventy-five and staggering <laughs> about, and the other one would have, you know, would have completely. So it's an imagined tennis, potentially imagined tennis match between Caravaggio and a Spanish playwright. Sort of, and another one of the plots is about is about the tennis balls, which I think I can't, they're using one of the tennis balls they're using or one of the tennis balls that's in the book is supposed to be stuffed with Anne Boleyn's hair 
which is also, and it's supposed to be found at the New York Public Library. I've sort of tried to dig about and find out if this is true. I'm not sure if any of it's true. It sounds Bits amazing. Of it, yeah. But it also takes in colonialism and Cortez and the Aztecs. And what it also does, really, it jumps into the present every now and again quite beautifully it's a translation because it was written in Spanish and he also talks about the translation as you, I mean he must have rejigged it a bit when he talks about the fact that it's a translation he doesn't try and pretend that it was written no, he's, in English he speaks English, English himself I mean he, he's based in New York I think so. yes he is yes. but I don't think he did the translation no, no, he I didn't. think someone else did it but he was clearly involved and there's a, there's a bit where you get a letter from his publisher in the book so I think about the translation so which sounds a bit arch yeah does, does this join the ranks of that very small list in my mind of postmodern books that actually like worth, worth reading it doesn't feel at all tricksy it really? just feels like really good fun and the stuff that's like historical fiction is gripping and awful because it's about Cortes and the Aztecs so it's brutal and kind of violent and serious uh, and the stuff about the tennis match is absolutely gripping you want to know who's going to win and the stuff about the tennis balls and the, it's just it's really brilliant and I haven't read anything like it certainly for a long time if ever and I should just say Michael Keynes wrote a very good review he of did. it for the TLS so yep. listeners can did he look like that it? up he loved it yep. yeah. I'm going yep. to have yep. to check this out it's really really good fun <laughs> okay who wants to go next year? should we stay in the realm of fiction Toby uh, yeah why not okay so my fiction choices Swing Time by Zadie Smith uh, All That Man Is by David Zoloy which was shortlisted for the Man Booker the Tidal Zone by Sarah Moss, which also got mentioned by others. And then, of course, The Lesser Bohemians by Eamon McBride, which didn't make it ah. onto the International Books now, of the Now, Toby Lixig is renowned in literary circles, <laughs> for anyone who doesn't know this, for being a, a fanboy of Eamon McBride. a fanboy, just a great admirer of her, of her work. Because we actually, in the TLS course, we carried an extract for it. Explain, Toby, what do you think happened with this? Because do you, were you surprised that it wasn't perhaps as uniformly, gushingly received as her first book? I was a little. Um, I mean... The, it had some positive reviews and it had some negative reviews. I think it is a better novel than her debut. I think it's a more complete novel. The things she does with language is similar, but the actual plotting and the narrative structure is is is, is just better and more compelling. So I don't know whether there was a bit of a kind of a kickback, you know, first-time novelist does brilliantly and then everyone wants to have a go at her second time around. Um, it's quite bleak, so I can see why people... Sort of it's found also the relentlessness of it. It's also difficult. stylish in the way that you, it's very hard, I imagine, to have a weak reaction to it. You're either going to really Absolutely, like it or yeah, you're going to. Exactly. I mean, she's doing such interesting things with language that you, you have to react to it some way. But I, I just, I don't think anyone else writes like her. No, I actually found that when we extracted it, I started reading it, and 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 because the way it's very stream of consciousness and it's got sort of strange little things like the words up and down in size and the, the spaces between words increases and decreases, you think it's going to be very difficult to read. It's quite forbidding when you look at it, Absolutely. and then after. I found after a page at least the rhythm of it was actually pretty mm, clear and it, it wasn't as difficult not, to read like, as, as like you thought it was going to be. all good writers who do new things with language, whether it's Burgess in Clockwork Orange or even someone like Irvin Welsh or whatever, you, you get into the diction. It might take a couple of pages and then mm. suddenly you're in this new linguistic world and that's incredibly exciting and it's very, very hard to do. Easy to parody. So, you know, if you want to take the mick out of her, then you can, you can write a kind of bad parody of it. But it's very, very hard to do well, and she does it very well. And I think we were, well, we were lucky enough to have that recording of her reading yes. her own work, and yes. that, really, that really brings it to life, because it sets a rhythm up for you, and then you yeah, know exactly how to do it. She trained as an actress, so yeah. she... she, oh, she? Had to, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. She, she went to drama school. I mean, so that, that was her, her initial career, so... Oh, so, so she's good at she's it. She's a really and, good And the book's about... Is it a book about... The girl it, it is about yeah. a young yes. drama Someone. student from Ireland who, who shacks up with an older man while studying in London. Um, uh, we should point out that you interviewed her 
uh, for this podcast. Yes, right. And so yeah, people right. who are interested in the Emit Bride, and this is where you can hear yeah. her, her reading it as well as this, says that's that exists somewhere in the internet ether it to, does to track down. In our feed, precisely, in specifically. Feed. All, right. All right, I was just trying to add a little bit of... Yeah, okay. You can find it if you look for it in the place you'd expect it to be, yes. And then, very briefly, without wishing to hog things, um, aside from fiction, my book of the year is oh, not yes. a novel. Oh, yes. My book of the year is The Return by Hisham Attar, who has been mentioned by a couple of our contributors. It is an extraordinary memoir by an extraordinary writer. Um, very briefly, Hisham Attar grew up in Libya. His father spearheaded a resistance movement against Gaddafi and the family had to flee when he was still a child to Egypt. He then studied in the UK, at which point when he was in his late teens, his father was disappeared from Cairo by Gaddafi, never to be seen again. And then after the revolution in 2011, Hisham goes back to Libya to try to find him and various uncles come out of prison, blinking into the sunlight he hasn't seen for 20 years, but the search for his father goes on. And it's, it is beautifully written, it's beautifully structured. He's primarily a novelist, so, you know, it's, it's not just a, a great story. He can write beautifully, um, but it really is one of the most effective never, books and, I've... And he never finds his dad. Well, I'm not going to give away the ending, okay. but... but stick, one stick just has... <laughs> <laughs> but actually, one of the things that's so brilliant about it is you do get a sense that he's not going to find his father, and yet, the way it's structured, you sort of, it doesn't really matter because you just keep reading, and it's, it's a story about fatherland, it's a story about fathers, what it's like to live under the shadow of this great man, because Jabal Matar was this, was this incredible, incredible, heroic, brave figure, and what it's like to be the son of, uh, of a man like that, and, and to sort of become a writer. And it's also about a hit, the history of Libya, which is an incredibly fascinating, troubled country. Something um, of an indictment of the British government for uh, not, help it, for not helping. Oh, uh, absolutely. And there, there are some wonderful scenes, sort of weird meetings with Saif al-Gaddafi, who is, who is Gaddafi's son, who's, who's actually still alive, um, in, in West London hotels, sort of set up by David Miliband, um, where... Mandelson. You know, and also Mandelson yeah. as well, yeah. M- M- yeah, Miliband asks... asks um, uh, Hisham Matar at one point, are oh, you one of us? It's kind of very strange. Doesn't he say something, something to the effect of all of this noise that you're making isn't isn't helping anyone? Yes, exactly, else, isn't it? helping anyone. It's, yeah, exactly. It, 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 was, it was a time when the British government was cozying up to Gaddafi before they turned against him again. But um, you, you, get, you, you get this strange this sense of this strange underworld of shady deals made in West London hotels and it's it's, it's also extraordinary we have a piece in this week's paper about no, sorry next week's paper about the va- uh, the value of torture and one of the things that comes out of it one very sort of sort of horrible line in it is is this fear that people have when they're trapped by the Americans they're, they're imprisoned by the Americans they will be made to cease to have existed and when you're trapped by the state it's not just the physical pain the physical threat to your life which is of course abhorrent it's the fact they have the means to remove your identity from ever having existed and you will never be found no one will know where you've got to and your life will effectively not have been and absolutely and w- w- one of the most effective things about the search is I mean Hisham himself doesn't think his father's alive but he wants to know what happened he wants to know where the body is when he died and all those things and, and the, the failure on the part of the Libyan authorities over years and years of campaigning to reveal this thing that they clearly know is extraordinary and it, and, it, and it drives his and it becomes an obsession as it would to anybody mm. we had a lovely review of this, of yes, this book as yeah, well, as well yeah, didn't absolutely. we Elizabeth Larry reviewed Elizabeth, it for yeah, us yeah it was great Thea do you want to offer well, your book of the year yes or I mean I'm, gonna, I'm going to be taking us back to fiction I okay. think in, in my retreat from reality and I, I really enjoyed Otessa Moshevig's Eileen has anyone read that one? No. Tell us about it. Okay, well, let me. So, it, uh, well, it's set in 1964 in the run-up to Christmas. Um, Moshveg is a, I think she's an American-Croatian-Iranian. 
Um, okay, good. Yeah, that's a good mix. <laughs> but anyway, so it's set in 1964 in the run-up to Christmas in New England, and the central character, well, it's a protagonist narrator, is Eileen, and um, she's this very strange character who uh, is racked with shame over her own body and kind of tries to stave off puberty by starving herself, and her father is a retired cop who's having delusions and shooting people left right and center she fantasizes in the meantime about a guy who she works with at this young uh, young detention young men's detention center that she works at Uh, she fantasizes about this colleague called randy so it sounds it sounds pretty ridiculous it sounds i mean it sounds it sounds like the kind of place where archetypes might go to die but somehow moshveg carries it off and i think it's it's so it's so moody and so evocative and it's it's very tight and very economical and some of her descriptions are just brilliant and i think it's first and foremost because she's a she started out and i think she's most known for her short stories and so the intensity of the mood is is really there and and you know much of the the stylistic things you would expect of a short story you'll find so you know there's a central incident and then the mood and but then it's 270 odd pages long so it's it's punchy but with that extra length that she's got at her disposal she she does some interesting things with genre she sort of blends a kind of noirish thriller with a kind of a more conventional coming of age narrative and there's interesting explorations of femininity and female friendship which is i think an area that there's there's plenty i mean you know i know it's it's quite trendy now but i think that that's no reason for us not to accept more and more of it because there's a lot of a lot of space left in that field i think it's just very very interesting and i I think she's a really promising voice i think promising in part because she seems to show such ease in shifting from one one character to the next if you look on i think i think it was the new yorker published um one of her short stories and she has a collection forthcoming it's coming it's coming out in january in january Gwendolyn Riley's going to review it oh excellent perfect well yes i mean she she has this kind of she seems to favor these quite grotesque strange characters and she does that so well she slips into their voices so well with the ease of someone like you know george saunders or something am Holmes so, does that a little bit in in, in short stories yeah and i mean think i think if if anything that sort of is a guarantee of longevity endless variety and real well, what do we skill. think about this i'm interested in this because um, what is the state of uh, health of short stories as a as a medium because to me I, i'm endlessly dissatisfied by short stories i always have but i always think that if a story is 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 strong enough when you read it you wish it had been turned into a novel and very often when you read short stories you can see why they're short stories because the germ of the idea was all was kind of was born pre-stunted and it can take you so far and and, and no more is it, um, which is kind of Philistinism on my part, I do get that. But where, where are we in the sort of world of short stories? Toby, maybe you know. Maybe I think is, the, is, is it resurging or the, is it? The cliche is always that short stories do better in America. Mm. So, uh, sort of, uh, there are lots of venerable old American publications that have always, you know, like the New Yorker, that have published short stories, and that allows collections to um, to come about. Publishers aren't afraid of collections of short stories there, and the, the cliche is that they are here. I actually think that's becoming less true. Mm. I think especially with the resurgence of small presses in recent years who are able to take punts on things, I think there have been some really extraordinary collections. One of the ones I've liked the most I've read in the last year was um, Angela Redman. I mean, she's very much a short story writer. I mean, I, I, I would, would disagree with your philistinism about short stories because her... You know, she, you, when you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. 
Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. You read her, I'm trying to remember what the name is, it's, it's, it's published by And Other Stories. Don't Try This at Home, that's the name of the collection. And you read each one of her very short stories and you wouldn't want them to be a novel. They're, they're perfectly encapsulated little ideas and and the containment in them is, is what makes them so wonderful. Just I've read a few novels that I'd much rather they were short stories. It's very true. There's well, that great line of Hemingway where he talks about how uh, you um, the omitted part strengthens uh, the story. It works particularly for short stories yeah, that you of the iceberg. You, you, you tell yeah. the whole story, and then the omitted part is the thing that actually is speaking to you most, most profoundly. Which I, I and, you, and you do get that with Hemingway. I mean, I remember the, there's that, that collection of his short stories, the total collection, uh, Every Man Do It, and, and you do get it with, with those where you sort of read it, and there's nagging bits you can't quite see in your vision, and, and they're the things that are probably the most disturbing. Uh, well, I should say mine then, uh, which is the opposite of a short story. It's a very long book, which is Barkskins by Annie Prooks. Prooks? Prue. Prue. Hang on. Prue. Prool. Prool. <laughs> <laughs> Theo is technically the pronunciation guru of this podcast. Oh, so no, I, I stand down, though, for this one. I thought it was Prool. Prool. Okay. Anyway, we know what we're talking about. Uh, but uh, no, it probably is Prue. I think it's Prue. But Prue. I, I, I might be wrong. Anyway, <laughs> Annie Prue, uh, obviously, uh, her, she, I suppose, what she most famous in her, she wrote the short story that became Brokeback Mountain, the film, uh, and she wrote The Shipping News, was probably her first major novel. And what I love about her is she's the opposite of a short story writer in that these books are, this book is hugely long. It's filled with very strange characters uh, despite being a sort of female author she's incredibly good on the lives of tough hard-bitten men in very harsh environments and this is a sort of generational story which goes from the 17th century in Canada all the way through to the present day about people who are bark skins who live their lives because they're connected to logging and trees and the least successful part of it is the environmental politics of it although that's kind of important I think to her the main success of it is just this continual litany of lives of sort of tough guys uh, trying to make a living from felling trees. And she has this brilliant thing, which I, I think is the thing I most like when I read her books, is she just kills people off left, right and centre. Uh, and so the novel is continually unbalanced by that. So you're, you're, you get to know someone and you're enjoying seeing the world through their eyes. And in a sentence it will be, and then on Tuesday he was knocked into the river and drowned immediately. <laughs> or uh, someone in a bar fight hacked off his head with an axe or something like that. It's often very uber-violent, very sort of tersely done. And I 
People didn't love this book, actually, did they? Yeah, it got a bit of, well, the TLS gave it a lovely review, yes. and uh, I would urge all, <laughs> all <laughs> listeners to look up yeah. that fantastic review by One Stig Abel. <laughs> but some people didn't like. Some people no, didn't it, like it. It was, it was, it was, yeah, it was kicked a little bit, wasn't it? Well, precisely it? what I, you just described was what it was criticised yeah. for: having too many characters that are too easily dispensed and yeah. for too much. And telling f- and for being too showing. long and I have a little theory about this I think reviewers are sometimes very mean about books that are over 500 pages not because the book themselves the book itself is bad but because they feel sore about having to read so many pages in a short cross. space of time because mm, they're cross because they I, I <laughs> think reviewers true. favour shorter books for that very reason well, for, listen, that's, for laziness that's such a good point because also if you review for something other than the TLS sort of weekly uh, sort of uh, broadsheets you're often given a book I once I once reviewed a book for the Sunday Telegraph it was Robert Bilan- Roberto Bilano's 2066 that's Bolano. a big book it's like eight- <laughs> <laughs> Great I'm sorry I'm yeah. sorry you, you were pointing yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> your pronunciation guru status has not been revoked Bolano <laughs> Bologna, yes, okay. Yes, Robert, yes. I know, Roberto Bologna, 2066. It is basically 800 pages long. And I remember getting it, I was, and it arrived in the post on a Monday. And like, can you file this by Thursday or Friday? And basically, then your whole life is taken up by every moment that you're not at your job. You're reading this book frantically to do it. And, mm. and do, you, do you think maybe that, that people get enough time to, to, to read the books properly that they're reviewing? Well, I, t- I tend to give my reviews at least three weeks. When I review for the publications, I'm sometimes given 10 days, and, uh, and I, I always bristle at that because it's, it, you're, I mean, reviewing in, in itself is an artificial way of reading something, but it's even more artificial if, you, as you say, you have to read it in your every spare moment. It's immediately going to change your relationship with that book and make you feel less generous towards it and yeah. suddenly taking up all your time. Uh, I'll do one more before, very quickly because it's sort of traditional history, but I did enjoy it because I read the review in the TLS and I read it as A Stain in the Blood by Joe Mashenska, which is a book about Kenelm Digby, who's a fascinating Elizabethan figure whose dad was, no, Jacobean figure then, his dad was executed in the gunpowder plot purges and then went on to uh, have this extraordinary career sort of traveling around the world in those great picaresque lives of people in the 16th and 17th and 18th centuries where lives of course were just completely removed from us now but stain in the blood by joe mishenska very good indeed right with other things books we wish we had read books that are either sitting on our shelves glaring at us <laughs> or books that we haven't even got so far as to do that any conscience prickers here? So many. <laughs> I've got books I feel I ought to have read. Go on. I don't really want to read them. Go, go on, that's okay. <laughs> I think... It's a little on the Philistine side, but I set it? the bar oh, low I'm in sorry. that respect. I'm so sorry. Don't <laughs> I didn't mean the second bit. Yeah. I feel I ought to have read Elena Ferranti. I'm sorry, Thea. Well, I haven't any? yet read any. No, not okay. a word. I will. I feel, Toby, I'm sorry for this. I ought to have read Knausgaard. Not a word. This has turned into a confession. I know. We're very close to playing the David Lodge game of humiliation, which we are not going to play. That's quite a lot of reading then, because I, we're I know, talking about I know. four volumes and six volumes. I so. know. I'm, I'm not going to do yeah. it, am I? I? I wish I would like to have read How the French Think by Sudhir Hazari Singh. Oh, who's of, a great of reviewer of ours. Yeah. yeah. Um, I, I would I would like to read that. And I would like to read that Jonathan Safran Foer. Here I am. Here I am. Here I am. Yeah. Which we published an extraordinarily positive review and, and Claire Loudon yes. came mm. on the podcast didn't she Thea yeah. and was utterly enamoured mm. of that as a book and again one of the big books go. of this year that has, pages, that, that, has, that, that has split the split the critics well and yet it was not one of her books of the year no that's so. interesting yeah she did she, she, yeah, she, she chose A.D. Smith she yeah. chose uh, A.D. Yeah. Smith and yeah. Soloy uh, I'd also like to read that book that Hilary Mantel recommends for us um, Arboreal because it sounds nice that's okay well that's a lot not to go I'm going to go with uh, 
the Karl Marx book that Ferdy Mount wrote, a uh, very long and brilliant review. It's by it's called Karl Marx: Greatness and Illusion. It's by Gareth Stedman Jones. I'm reading a lot about economics at the moment. It's a Capital by Thomas Piketty. I've just read. A lot of what Marx was saying, even if the conclusions he drew um, were in many ways, of course, erroneous and indeed dangerous, as the great review that Ferdinand Mount says, you know, the brutality that exists in communism was written into it, hardwired into it by Karl Marx. But it's a, a lot of the ideas that he's talking about as the capitalist society of the Victorians was growing are now relevant again because we're living in a society, as Thomas Piketty makes clear, which mirrors the world of Victorian, where inherited wealth is going to become more important, where capitalism rewards the very few rather than the many. Uh, and so Marx, as a sort of current thinker, even if you don't agree with the conclusions and certainly not with how they were uh, manifested, becomes relevant again. And in sort of the crisis of capitalism, he's quite a good figure to read. And it seemed like an interesting book, and I have got it. And so uh, that's the one I wish I had read, which I will try and remedy. On um, on an economic theme, my book is Frank Trentman's uh, Empire of Things. Oh, yeah. Which is so big that I have a copy. Yes, it was. I was happy uh, to see that. Sam Leith reviewed it for us in a big piece on luxury. Yeah, I was happy to see it in the books of the year because I think that that, this kind of ambition, it's nice to see it rewarded. Um, I have have a copy of it at home and it's so big big that it can't leave the house. Because it it Um, would hurt your back. (laughs) I can't get it out the door. Yeah. It just it's it's a sort of a seven centuries long history of consumption, which is a very interesting way of looking at our yeah. history rather than productivity. But buying or stuff whatever. rather than the illness, I should say. Pardon? But buying stuff rather than the illness. Yes. <laughs> Although I would I would I would read a history of consumption. Yes. yes. I think the history of abstract ideas or, or even concrete ideas is, is is a great area of of publishing these days. Definitely. So a, a history of coughing consumption <laughs> as well as uh, uh, other consumption, I would I would read as well. It really is. Toby, what for you? Um, I will have read Paul Beatty's Booker Prize winning novel at some stage, but I haven't yet. Once I give it you back, potentially. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I did lend it to you. Um, that's something, I don't know if it's conscience pricking, I, I will get around to it because it does sound fun. Uh, I started it a while ago and it, in it, in it looked quite good. It's quite dense, but uh, yes, I, I, he, he's, he's a very interesting writer and I, you know, when I dipped into it, I enjoyed the bits that I read. Do any of us feel, actually, when these prize winning books happen or book nominations happen do you do you go and read the books as a result do you feel a responsibility to read them well i've i've just remembered just from you having said that now that one of the other books that is pricking my conscience is um a prize winning book it won the strega this year's um by eduardo albinati and it's called la scuola cattolica the catholic school and (laughs) all 1300 pages of it (laughs) in italian i would would have believed that (laughs) it's a thousand pages in italian of course i've read yeah what's the title again Uh, the catholic school in english yeah are you working on the translation of it now Uh, and um, it's a thousand pages about it's 1300 pages but it sounds it sounds like something i really really want to read the reviews have been quite sensational and um it just sounds like a very interesting project it's basically in a nutshell a mix of memoir and bildung's roman and crime real crime that centers on on a double murder almost double murder that happened in 1974 or 75 in italy in this school um, yeah these three um guys committed this murder and the author was at school with them in real life and so then the whole book expands into this meditation on failure really the failure of the criminal justice system to catch these guys and and execute justice um the failure of compassion the failure of understanding the failures of masculinity and and you know that manifest in violence and most specifically italian masculinity 
and gosh, what I mean, what else? It well, just well, sounds that's, like that it sounds enough. It yeah. sounds yeah. a little that's bit enough. Like the um, Graham Ray completely... Burnett novel that, that was shortlisted for the book, His Bloody Murder, which which also kind of blends a real life murder. This is in the sort of in the in, in the Scottish crofting community in the late nineteenth century with fiction and and investigates very similar yeah. themes. That's something. Well, yeah. talking of failure, we should do are disappointing books of the year. Now, Toby is a bit of a hatchet man, as we know, <laughs> and has been sharpening said hatchet. And when I said we might do disappointments, his eyes lit mm. up. <laughs> um, I've got a disappointment, uh, which is which has given me an awful lot of pleasure, which we'll get to, but go on, what is your disappointment? I think amongst all the disappointments, there's there's one that really, really <laughs> stands really, out. Really, not about the, not really about, this, is, this is still in the oh, books. Just books. Oh, just sorry, books. Sorry, <laughs> sorry. Oh, well, in which case, yeah. my choice for this is... Uh, without a shadow of a doubt, Home and Away, The Beautiful Game by Carl Over Knausgaard, and I'm a Knausgaard fan, and Frederick Eckerlund. This is a collection of the two writers' uh, letters to each other during the World Cup of 2014. Yes, 2014. It was also a publishing stunt, you know, they were put up to it by a publisher who thought it would be a good idea. It's 400 pages of unbelievably self-indulgent Nonsense. I've just written down a couple of lines to give you a little flavour of it. This is Carlo of Canalscord. This is banal and I don't know why I'm writing it, but as I said, I'm a little drunk, very tired and beyond self-criticism. What is a World Cup, really? One big theatre of dreams. Oh. <laughs> uh, Eckeland replies to Carlo, Football, Carlo, Jesus, it can really we- mess with your emotions. At 400 pages of that, it is yeah. extraordinary. Did anybody say it was a game of two yes. they, might, they might as well have done. And they, <laughs> I was they, as sick as a parrot. They each reply to the other's letters with a kind of paragraph saying, oh, how wonderful to have received your last letter. It's full of such mm. wisdom. They're incredibly mm. sycophantic to each other. And the whole thing is a complete farce. Well, I'm going to trump, as it were, that farce because it's a book that sat on the desk, uh, which I picked up continually and... <laughs> Uh, read continually. It's Foams by Peter Sloterdijk. And anyone who has obviously worked at the TS knows me, <laughs> knows me doing this, picks it up and starts reading it out. Very difficult to do any work, actually, because yeah, most of you are reading bits from Foams. Yeah, fo- so this is what the blurb <laughs> says about it. It completes Peter Sloterdijk's celebrated Spheres trilogy, his 2,500-page grand narrative retelling of the history of humanity as related through the anthropological concept of the sphere. And in this final volume, Sloterdijk's plural spherology moves from the historical perspective on humanity of the preceding two volumes into a philosophy, philosophical theory of our contemporary era, offering, this is important, a view of life through a multifocal lens. If Bubbles, his famous first book, was Sloterdijk's phenomenology of intimacy and Globes, his phenomenology of globalisation, Foams could be described as his phenomenology of spatial <laughs> plurality. How the bubbles that we form in our duality bind together to form what sociological tradition calls society. Foams is an exploration of capsules, islands and hot houses that leads to the discovery of the foam city. I don't understand what your problem is, Dick. And what I discovered about this, I talked to Tim Crane, who's our philosophy editor, I thought, is this a joke? It's vast, this book. I think, is this a joke? And he said he, when he first became philosophy editor, he was given that uh, to commission, and he commissioned it, and the review came in, and then he read it himself, and then we've never reviewed since the subsequent ones. But this Peter Sloterdijk is a major philosophical figure in Germany. He has his own TV show. This is actually regarded as serious. And when you pick, if anyone has a copy of it, just pick any sentence at random <laughs> and mean, read it out. It, 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 it is just absolutely <laughs> unreadable. He's a major philosophy figure who has his own TV yeah, show, got, though. I yeah. wonder if that sort of says. Yeah. Mm. He's a spherologist. He's a spherologist. He's, a major figure. he's discovered the foam city. <laughs> I mean, what more can one want in life? Right, and you two? Any, I any, possibly any, follow any, that. Any, any matching disappointments? 
And um, mine's, it's not a disappointment. Well, a bit. It's not a book either. I just do wonder about Bob Dylan getting the Nobel Prize. Ooh. I love Bob Dylan. If you're going to give it to one of those people, give it to Leonard Cohen. You can't now. Now, I know you can't now, but you could have at the time. Yeah. Or, or not. Because yeah. Bob doesn't seem that bothered. No, we've got he, uh, really? in NB this week. Uh, we reflect on the fact that it's seven hundred grand, and he's not going to show up to pick it up. And he says next time he tours in Scandinavia, he might pick it up. And there is something. Mm. Is it either cool and and, and sort no. of? I love the little suit. detail that he was once given an honorary doctorate by, I believe, it was the University of St Andrews, and he did turn up to that ceremony. So therefore, it's even more of a snub. But I could believe that Bob Dylan might think that that was more. I don't know, he might take that more seriously in a way, because it was, it, that was quite a specific thing, whereas, oh, I don't know, I just... It, it, I was quite pro him getting it, but I think what it does illustrate in the end is the utterly arbitrary nature of this as, a, as, a, as a, an annual prize, the fact that he could get it, and we were talking about Adonis, and mm. well, it wasn't Adonis, it was Bob Dylan, kind of shows how it's just a ludicrously mm. arbitrary choice from people. And yet it has this kind of air of gravity that is his greater than all other prizes. And, and well, it's, I think it's because of the science, isn't it? Because for the, because for the science, it really is... It really is a, a really very big deal, and these are people who make major breakthroughs, and it's all it's quantifiable. Whereas as soon as you start giving out a, a prize for peace, economics, literature, that's not quantifiable. Yeah. And, yeah, and, and, you know. and the economics isn't even properly from the Nobel family. That is a complete add-on. Uh, is it after, really? Yeah, no, after, after the end. Right, we should probably leave it there. I think what's been great is, I've, after this, I'm going to pick a couple of books to go and read. Say your one again, Lucy, about the Amberlin's hair in a tennis ball. Sudden death. Sudden death. Yeah, really, really good. And the Cath and the Catholic. The Catholics will, unless you can learn Italian very quickly. Who's to it's say not I don't speak? Yet. Oh God. <laughs> you can read it in Italian. I, I wonder if someone is translating it. I yes. don't know how I would even begin to find out. Someone should translate. Anyway, there's some great books. I hope people uh, have got books that they might go and buy or give for Christmas as well. Uh, that's almost all we have time for this week. Before we listen to the Addington Simmons poem, uh, very much thank you to Thea, to Toby and to Lucy. I think for it re impressing us all with the depth and range of their reading. <laughs> Against all odds, actually. Against all odds is nice, thanks. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, thank you for that. Please do subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. We'll be back every week with highlights from the TLS and discussions on other cultural subjects. This week's paper is now on sale with the Books of the Year list, plus Gregory Raddick on the Intimate History of the Gene, Peter Debola on the Theory of How Paintings Get Their Name, Christine Bold on How the History of Native Americans Intersected with Show Business, and Gretchen Gerzina on the Forgotten History of Black People in Britain. And there are some chaps called Stig Abel and Michael Caines reviewing various plays of Shakespeare, thanks to you, Lucy. Uh, yes, no, wonderful. Yeah, well, yes. <laughs> it's absolutely marvellous. Marvellous, marvellous. you must read that bit. Yes, well done, well done. You can visit our website, the-tls.co.uk, to learn more about our print and digital subscriptions and come back daily to the site for new original pieces from TLS writers, including Dennis Duncan on the 70th anniversary of I'll Spit on Your Graves by Boris Villon, The Cultural Life in Vietnam by Jiang Nguyen Tu, which I don't think even you can help me with no, there, Thea, yeah. and our response to the death of William Trevor. And you can follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, and please do review us on iTunes. 
Uh, to end the show, we're going to hear The Song of the Swimmer by John Addington Simmons, part of his feverish composition of homoerotic verse in the 1860s and 70s. This poem bears the hallmarks of the influence of Walt Whitman, whose poetry Simmons credited for making his desires grow manlier, more defined, more direct, more daring and the influences of Hellenic culture as well. The poem could never have been widely shared and was carefully protected and preserved by Simmons. We now hear it for the first time, read by the deputy editor of the TLS, Alan Jenkins. Until next week, when we'll do more of the same, only a little bit different from Thea and from me, goodbye. The Song of the Swimmer. One, a young man, naked, is as good a sight as Monte Rosa. I could stand a day to gaze at him, to see him curving for a dive or emerging from the water after a long swim, to see him course along the bank, tossing up his arms. The dew is brushed from the grass by his feet. The morning sunlight slants across his flank. The buttercups lean forward to be touched by him. The chestnut branches bend their foliage and cones of snowy white blossom to shelter him. He scuds across the green. He dries himself in the fresh air. His comrades shout and sing around him. Swimmers and runners in the daybreak are all beautiful, in the early sunshine under the fresh trees, scattering dewdrops from the herbage, tossing gold dust from buttercups with white ambrosial twinkling feet, illuminating the aisles of limes and chestnuts with divine human life. Two. I walked by the Serpentine this summer morning. There were a hundred bathers there. Towers of Westminster, afar off, slumbered on the hot, grey, vaporous dawn. A young rough passed before me. Uncouth he looked in his loose, tattered clothes, soiled with labour and the sweat of many days. He threw his rags aside. Naked he stood there, like an athlete, like a Greek hero, like Heracles or Hermes in the dawn of noble deeds. His firm and vital flesh, white, rounded, radiant, shone upon the sward. Slowly he moved across the lawn. He sauntered by the waterside. He bent his wonderful straight body for the plunge. Then I bowed my head. I acknowledged the God in him. I waited on the brink for the bather to reappear. I served him with my thoughts till he had swum his full. I followed him with swift eyes as a slave to his master. He returned. From the water he uprose. He stood upon the brink. The streamlets trickled down his side. Then, like an arrow, straight he flew. He sped across the grass. He made a flight of whiteness where he ran. Laughter and singing followed on his steps. I went along with him in spirit. My soul was not less ardent than his joy. She thrust her arms about his breast. She felt his heart throb. The dewdrops dried beneath her clasp. The ripple from the youth's curls drenched her hair. He stayed. He kneeled upon the grass. Quickly he resumed his clothes. The beautiful bright god was hidden. The hero disappeared. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.